Hey, thanks so much for listening to Sandals Church. Our vision as a church is to be real with ourselves, God, and others. We hope you enjoy this message. For the longest time, my son Eli was asking me the most random question every day. And it seemed like he would ask this question at the most random times of the day too. And it was this, he would say, dad, dad, do you know how the Liberty Bell got cracked? And I'm like, no, son, I, I, I don't know how the Liberty Bell got cracked. And like, why, why is that really important? He said, I don't know, like, I, you should know this. How come you don't know this? And I said, son, I, I don't know. Like, dude, to be very honest with you, when I was in high school, history was not something that like I cared about learning at that time. And so he said, well, still, I, I want to know how that cracked. And we're like, all right, whatever. So he would continue to ask this question. How did the Liberty Bell get cracked? And at one point he was asking me and we we're on the couch. I said, fine, you know what? I got time. Let's look it up. I Googled it and I, I read him the story on how it got cracked. And he said, oh, dad, I've known that. <laughs> I said, well, why have you been asking me? And he said, well, I wanted to know if you knew that. I'm like, man, this is so random, man. Like, kids are random. But I realized in that moment that the smartest person in the room was no longer a person. It was a device. And we find ourselves living in the information era, as people call it, where almost anything you want to know, be taught about, learn today, is in the power of our fingertips. It's in the palm of our hands. We can learn absolutely anything. And there's some amazing qualities to this. I mean, um, some people have studied that in a given week, any newspaper can produce more content in that week than what would take a person to read through their entire lifetime 200 years ago. Think about that. What you and I could consume in a week in terms of information, it would take someone in the 18th century their entire lifetime to get through it. It's even said that every five minutes, 1.3 million tweets are tweeted. Every five minutes, 360 hours of videos are uploaded to YouTube. Now, we live in an incredible era in which anything you want to know about is available to you through this device. Now, with that comes in, like immense benefits, right? I'm thinking back just to uh, Christmas Eve. This last Christmas Eve, our garbage disposal in the sink just goes completely out. So I'm like, great, Jesus, like on your birthday, I can't, I can't clean my sink or anything else that's going on. And so I'm, I'm kind of panicking. We got so much to do that day. And my wife comes in the kitchen. She's like, Fredo, just why, why don't you chill? Go on your phone, get on YouTube, and see how somebody fixed this. I'm like, man, woman, that's amazing. How you look so good. You just teach me something so easy like that. <laughs> and so I calm down. I take a deep breath. I get on my phone. And, and imagine that. I watched a guy with my same gar garbage disposal on sink fix it. And I fixed mine too. And man, I know it was Jesus' birthday, but you couldn't tell me nothing <laughs> that day. I felt, I felt amazing. I fixed this sink issue. And it was incredible. Now, I think many of us have stories like that where we are tremendously blessed on a day-to-day -day basis because of the information, the teaching, the things that we can learn so available to us. But at the same time, though, it doesn't seem to be the case that it's actually changed us to become a society that's more peaceful, more free, more loving, more changed. You would imagine that given all that we can know about and the sense of control that it comes with, it would lead us to actually be able to breathe as a society but it seems to do the exact opposite. 
If anything, we're still constantly anxious and worried. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is all this information that's available to us actually doing to us as the human race? It's transforming us into something. And it reminds me of the age-old question I would get um, as I was a high school teacher. Every day the students would ask, why do I need to learn this? (laughs) And embedded in that question is a true sense in that we want to know that what we're learning is actually going to make our lives better. It's going to make us better. Now, here's the thing, whether you are a Jesus follower or not, and you're watching this, we at least agree on this, that there's a shared vision we all have in which this is the good life and I want to live it. And also in that shared vision of the good life, there's a sense in all of us, whether you follow Jesus or not, in which you want to become a loving person. You want to become a better person. And I would imagine that from God's word, we're going to discover exactly what that looks like. Consider for a moment that there is power in teaching to the degree that it can make you a person who just doesn't experience a good life, but who actually is someone who can love and has the capacity to love people well with what they know about. Because if there's anything that Pastor Matt has said well over the years, it's this. Most of us are educated about God beyond our capacity to actually obey God. (laughs) And so the truth is, you and I don't need a new insight today. What we need to do is to trust what we already believe and know and to trust it in a way that it actually transforms the way we live. Because generationally, as we think about the power of us and and what is so unique about all of these different generations coming together as Jesus's family is that what we actually believe about God should change the way we live and relate to one another. And so from 1 Timothy, we're going to see what this looks like and how we can be transformed in this way. And so as we read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to ask just in the honor of God's word being read that you would all stand with me. If you're watching from a Sandal Church campus, would you stand as well if you are willing and able to do so? And follow along as I read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul writes these words. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, as we listen to your word today, would you help us to be changed by it? God, in this moment together, as we are a church, would you, as Jesus said, give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might become who you have called us to be in him. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You guys can be seated. About a year ago, uh, an important article came out that talked about how the younger generation is formulating their religious belief. 
And this author said that what is so unique about this information age that we all find ourselves living in is that it's created a freedom for individuals to pick and choose from different kinds of faith systems what they want to adhere to and what they don't want to adhere to. So basically, we're making decisions as people, especially as young people, to follow a faith system or to have religious convictions based on what we think works for us as individuals. Now, the author likened it to cable bundling. He said, instead of cable bundling, we are doing what's called religious bundling. You see, when you go and get a cable or you, you call a cable company, you can tell them, I want ESPN. Got to have ESPN. I'm watching the Lakers. They were terrible this year. We grieve with you today. Um, I, you know, I want ABC. Got to have some Fox. I got I to have these channels where my movies are at. These are the shows I like to watch, right? We bundle our cable. He's saying in the same way, we have created a form of religious bundling where we just pick and choose what we want and we go with it. And so we end up taking religion not for what it actually is, but for what we want it to be for ourselves. Now, as individuals living in America, that makes a lot of sense and it feels great until a crisis hits your life. When a crisis hits, you begin to unravel. You begin to question what you think about yourself, what you think about God, what you think about people, life, the world, everything, meaning all of it is thrown up into the air. And that's very real. Because when a crisis hits, you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. When a crisis hits, you get a divorce. Crisis hits, you lose your job. Somebody dies. Somebody who you trusted has now hurt you, right? Some of you today are working through a serious crisis in life. And I realize that even when I sit down with people who are in this kind of season and they, they say to me, Fredo, I feel like I'm going to just quit on God. It's in a strange way, I don't get sad when I hear that. I actually get a little bit excited. Because I think what they mean is they're quitting on the God of their imagination, not the God who is real. They're quitting on a God that they have created, not the God who is revealed to us in Jesus of Nazareth, not the risen Jesus. That God, I think, actually in the process of quitting on him, they're closer to finding him than they actually think. And this is a thing that we got to consider, not just that's outside, but even inside in the church. We have to be mindful that we can be teaching and learning a version of Christianity that lacks Christ. That's what Paul says here in verse three. He says to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people. Now he is saying that because he's left from Macedonia and he was telling Timothy, you're gonna stay here at this church and instruct them. You're going to correct them. You're going to restore them under the authority of Jesus. You're going to help them right the ship away from wrong teaching and in a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Now notice this phrase, he says certain people. Man, it'd be your own people sometimes, just like they say. Certain people, in other words, this is not something happening on the outside, this is happening inside the church. And he says certain people not to teach false doctrine. Now in the Greek, that phrase literally means to teach other things. Sometimes when we hear false doctrine, we think of cults, we think of crazy heresies that are just like so out there, right? But false doctrine, listen now, can be subtle things. Small, subtle things that we don't quite catch up front that's just different from what we've been told. And then he says, or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Now, it's interesting for Paul. He doesn't quite mention what the false teaching is, but he connects it to myths and genealogies. And then he says, these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, empty speculations means it's meaningless. And so whatever they were teaching, this different understanding, this version of Christianity without Jesus was meaningless. 
And in some strange way, it was connected to Jewish origin stories and genealogies and, and ways for them to kind of manipulate Christian phrases, Christian ideas, but in a way that turned people away from Jesus. It's almost like um, if we went out to watch another Marvel movie, and of course, it's another origin story on some, some hero, and you go into the theater, you pay your money, you sit down, you watch this movie, and at the end of the two hours, you have no idea what it meant. Like, who was this person? It had no meaning. It had no point. That's essentially what Paul is saying happening here to the church. They have no idea what this teaching is actually all about. And then he goes on to say this. He says, they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. Man, it reminds me of a time in seminary where I was, I was taking a class, and I'll never forget this. Uh, the professor, his name was Dr. Robert Plummer. And the class was a class on the book of James. We, we spent the whole class just translating the book of James in Greek. Now, I say that not because I'm smart. I was barely making it in this class, y'all. I had my roommates. Thank God for my roommates. And there was one lecture in which I remember him just kind of stopping. He took a deep breath. He, he had like this kind of sigh. And he looked at all of us and he said, listen, guys, my greatest concern for you is that in seminary, you would learn enough as teachers to become dangerous as pastors. And that's real. That, that actually really struck me because what he was saying is very, very true. There's a temptation for all of us, even within the church, to learn enough to become very dangerous, dangerous with what we know. Is this happening to you? Is there any way in your own life in which you are kind of putting together a version of Christianity that actually lacks Jesus? Because it could be true. You see, many of us learn just enough to make us spiritually dangerous with people rather than spiritually safe with them. And the way this happens is we take scripture, we manipulate it, we try to use scripture to control other people. Jesus himself had to deal with this in John chapter five. He's speaking to religious leaders who were leading the churches of that day. And he said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Notice for Jesus, the, the Bible, the scriptures, as he called them, is not just this hodgepodge collection of moral principles that feel disconnected and essentially tell you how to live your life, what to do and not do with your money, what to do and not do with your body. No, that's not how Jesus reads the Bible. Nor does he see the Bible as a bunch of disconnected kind of historical stories about people and weird events that just don't seem to translate into our modern world. No, Jesus reads the scripture as one unifying story that ultimately points to him. And to read it as anything else is to miss the point. To teach scripture as anything else is to miss the point. Now, why is this so important for us? Because as we think about the generational differences we have within the church, it's often the case that we can easily share with the other generation a version of Christianity that we got and completely forget that it's missing Jesus. So you might think you have the word of God, but you have missed the heart of God, which is in Christ. And this is how it happens, because while it's true that you may have found Jesus in your generational tradition, it's not true that Jesus is only to be found in that tradition. You see, it's a lot like this. Uh, my mom has been a medical professional for, for years. I mean, since I've been born, she's, I think she's been a nurse. And for a number of years, she spent time working for a medical company that served hospitals 
that helped patients try to get out of the hospital as fast as they could. Because what they discovered is the longer you spend in a hospital trying to get well, trying to get healed, the greater the potential risk becomes for you catching something that is found in the hospital. So it's crazy. You go to a place to get healed only to embrace the risk that you might catch something else that's in the hospital that you don't even have to begin with. So part of her career for a while was helping to get people out of the hospital faster, get them, get them healthy, get them checked, get them well enough before they catch something else. The same is true about our churches. We find ourselves going to a church, hearing the gospel, meeting Jesus in that particular setting to get well. But here's the thing. All of us pick up other things from those churches too that are not of Jesus. And over time, in our generations, because those things are comfortable, they're traditions. We like our traditions. We begin to teach in such a way that we offer those traditions to people instead of actually Jesus. This is what we have got to get beyond if we're going to be an intergenerational church that looks beyond our traditions in a way that we can actually connect with each other again. This is what Jesus is inviting all of us into. And the way this happens is what Paul offers us in verse five, when he talks about the aim of our instruction is love. You see, the goal of our learning is that we would become people of love. People of love. Notice what he says there, the aim of our instruction. In other words, the target he's pointing at, the goal that he has in mind is love. The goal of teaching is not that you would have right doctrine, that you would have right theology, the goal of teaching is not that you would correct somebody. The goal of teaching is not even that you would have political correctness. The goal, the aim of teaching, the aim of learning Christian truth is that we would become people of love. More specifically, agape love. That's the word that's used there. Agape meaning self-giving love, self-sacrificial love. You see, agape love is love that sacrifices itself in a way that creates good for somebody else. Can this be said of us today? That we are learning Christian truth in such a way that it's making us people who give of ourselves for the good of somebody else. Or could it be said that the aim of our instruction is to correct people, to pass judgment on them, to get them to conform to a version of Christianity that makes sense to us. You see, the power of us is found in that our teaching can make us people of love, which is to say that the truest test on whether or not you have actually learned anything is if you love somebody, is if you love somebody. Ultimately, what you know is not about what you know. It's about who you love because of what you know. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries, man, what, what a celebrity pastor he would be at that point. <laughs> and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, hear these words in your soul. I am nothing. Nothing, all of who you are, if you don't have the capacity to offer the love of Jesus through your life, what are you doing with what you have? There is no one more successful outside of Jesus rising from the dead in the early church, probably than the apostle Paul. The audacity 
and humility to say he is nothing without love should leave all of us startled right now about how we carry ourselves based on what we think we know and what we're trying to teach the next generation. Because I think when it comes to how we related to other generations, we have been so off. And our goal has not been to either become a person of love or listen now to correct them in love. Because that's what Paul is getting at. Timothy, if you don't become a person of love, you will be just like the false teachers. And in your desire to correct their false teachings, you yourself will become one of them because you don't do it in love. Next generation, consider this. You will become just like the older generations if you treat them the way you have not liked how they have treated you. There's got to be something different in the way that we respond to each other intergenerationally and how we become people of love. And so ask yourself right now, is the way that you are learning things, whether it's through the news, the influencers you follow, the way that you intake content and education and learning, is it leading you to become a person of agape? You see, the picture I get is of Jesus on the cross, that's agape, self-sacrificial love, giving of himself for sinners who only care about themselves. Because that's the definition of love. Ultimately, sin is a failure to love. That's what it is. And at the cross, we have a picture of what agape actually looks like. If we're going to become a different church, if we're going to embrace the power of us, it means we have to understand that truth ultimately serves love. Truth serves love. If you have just stopped your engagement or relationship with someone at the content and haven't actually relationally loved them, you're not doing it right. We are not doing it right. We're called to something much more beautiful. And the way that I think this happens is through a practice that Christians have had available to them forever. You see, how can we allow our learning and our teaching transform us into people of love? Real simple, practically, it's through prayerful meditation. Prayerful meditation. You see, meditation turns my learning about God into an experience of God itself. Now, I know when I say meditation, some of you get a little little off. Like, man, I knew it about Fredo. (laughs) I knew this was in Fredo. I I felt it years ago, and now it's been confirmed. He's kind of off. It's not true. Meditation is found everywhere in scripture. And believe, believe it or not, you actually meditate and I meditate more than we think about. When you are bored and you daydream, you're meditating. In a moment of boredom and, and daydreaming, you are bringing yourself to focus on something so intently that it disconnects you from where you're actually at. You're daydreaming. Your, your thoughts, your mind, it, it's so focused on a passion, a desire, a, a worry, a concern, a trip, an opportunity. You're daydreaming. You're meditating on it. The same is true when we worry. Oh man, we're all very, we all have the spiritual gift of worrying. And when we worry, we're bringing our whole self to focus on one particular thing. So much so, we're so good at meditating around what we worry about that it actually leads to something called anxiety. We all have it. It's anxiety. And I love what one writer, Andy Crouch, says, anxiety is when you and I imagine the future without Jesus. What a profound thought. So we all meditate. You meditate, I meditate. We do it. And prayerful meditation allows us, and I know it sounds cliche, but it helps us to move from just knowing about God to actually experiencing God. 
Knowing that God is a love or that God is love is actually experienced more than just kind of sensed or known on paper or in theory. And to help us understand this, I want to read Ephesians chapter three. Paul, when he says this, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. Notice what he says. I'm praying that you rooted in love can grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To know, and listen to this phrase, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowing something? He's getting that experience. And he says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see, as we meditate, we bring ourselves in in a moment of prayer to become aware of God's presence right there, that God is near us. And, And it moves us from just having facts about God, teaching about God, into actually experiencing the God who is there. As Psalm 27 talks about, I seek your face, God. I seek your face. That's the relational gateway, right? To seek his face means that you are seeking his presence. You're seeking intimacy. You are seeking an experience with God. That's where transformation happens. I love what David Brennan wrote in his book called Surrender to Love. He says this, meditating on God's love has done more to increase my love than decades of effort to try and become a more loving person. You see, it's when I come to him in my failure at love that his love can actually transform me. You see, when you are meditating, when you're in prayerful meditation before God, you are holding up to God, not a version of yourself that you hope to be, but who you actually are. And you're allowing God to love, not who you want to be, but who you actually are in that moment. And that is transformational. You see, prayer is so hard for many of us because we are unwilling to acknowledge that who God wants in that moment is actually you, not who you want to be in that moment. He wants you, which is why we drill down this vision of authenticity. It can't grow. You can't have a life with God unless you understand you're bringing your actual self to God, who you actually are. And rather than trying so hard to become a loving person, you are experiencing something in order that you might begin to give it away to somebody else. There is a a book, it's called How God Changes the Brain. I got to nerd out, man. You guys got Pastor Fredo for about 20 minutes. Now as we close, you need nerd Fredo. So let me talk about neuroscience and faith for a little bit. Uh, this actually came from a friend of mine. Um, he sent me this podcast on neuroscience and how it connects to faith. And so it's really Mike's fault that as a high five, I totally went on this rabbit trail to figure out what's going on because there's been fascinating research done in the last few decades on the relationship between what is happening in our brains and when we engage in spiritual disciplines like prayer. And there's this book called How God Changed the Brain um, by Andrew Neuberg. He's a leading neuroscientist. And what he talks about is how in our minds we have these things called mirror neurons, which is to say when we are with somebody and experiencing them, we can start to reflect them. Now we know this when you're watching the news or you're scrolling through social media and you see like some person just ranting, going off, you start to feel frustrated too. Their anger is reflected and you get angry. The same is true if you're around people who are anxious all the time, like constantly nervous, like you start to get like that too. 
which is why we love to be around people who are just like levitating wherever they go. Because we love that. We love to reflect that kind of energy, right? These, these are the mere neurons in our brains functioning. And he writes and argues that if you meditate on God long enough, it begins to form and shape our brains in a very unique way. He says this, he says, there is this part of our brain called the anterior cingulate. It's in between the limbic and the prefrontal structure. I told you I'm gonna be a nerd. And he says, when you meditate and when you're praying, this part of your brain begins to get stimulated. So much so that in that act of meditation, your brain is able to decrease the impulses of fear and anger and increase the impulses of compassion and affection. What we long for. And in his words and Paul's words, when we are thinking about how wide, deep, long, the love of Christ is, he says this, it appears to strengthen the same neurological circuits that allow us to feel compassion toward others. So in prayer, as you are meditating on what you're learning about, you feel and sense the compassion of God for you in such a way that it actually biologically shapes your brain to become a compassionate person towards people. Simply put, for better or for worse, the way we experience God will be the way that we engage with people. Listen now, for better or for worse, which is why for some of us, and I'm not trying to take a jab at a lot of the smarty pants Christians I went to school with, but there is a temptation in particular veins of Christianity today in which they emphasize doctrine, believe the right thing, the wrath of God, the anger of God, all these things that sound so right, sometimes they tend to be like kind of rude, man. <laughs> like they're just rude. And again, I, I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but I think it is true that the way that you and I think God is treating us will ultimately determine how we treat people. That's how it works. I think of the famous words of Archbishop William Temple. He said this, that if people have a wrong view of God, the more religious they become, the worse the consequences will be. And get this now. And eventually it would have been better for them to be atheists. You see, the way we experience God for better or for worse will communicate how we engage with people. But prayerful meditation allows us, you guys, to receive God, not just on paper and through facts and in teaching, but to actually experience him. And, and this has been a, a journey for me. I, I am up here talking to you guys today, not as someone at all who has arrived, but someone who's trying to practice this every, every day. Because early on as a Christian, I loved to be right. And I don't know if the aim of my instruction was that I would become a loving person because I love to learn, but I don't think I love to love. And so this has been my own personal journey. And, and as we close, I actually just want to offer to you guys things, things that I do in my own life to help expand this ability to have agape love be real in my life. Um, on any given morning, I wake up and, and the first thing I try to do is I grab my Bible and I read a psalm. I read a psalm. And in reading a psalm, again, not because I'm, I'm holy, it's the exact opposite. I am so detached from how I feel <laughs> on a regular basis that the psalms 
help awaken me to my emotions before God. Because if you know anything about the Psalms, man, they, they cover an array of emotions of God's people. Their prayers, their songs, their laments, man, they, they are meant not so much to be cut up and understood, but just to be sung and to be prayed, even with your own tears. And so I read a Psalm just to help wake me up to God's presence and to how I'm feeling before him in that moment. And then, and then I go to a, a small teaching from the Gospels. I try not to consume too much and I try to just take a few chunks and just read through it slowly and just slowly and just, and just kind of take in some words and, and see what sticks. And then I move to a time where I just pray silently. I, I just sit there. I do prayerful meditation. And in this moment, I think of God in three particular ways that helps me. I, I open myself to God's presence and I think about the vision of our church, honestly. And that's what I want to encourage you guys to pray with. God, self, others. I mean, you can't walk five feet in this place without hearing the vision statement from one of us. But I do. I walk through the vision. I think about God. And, and I imagine as I'm praying to God that God is agape. God is the definition of love. And then I think about God being joyful. As a melancholy person, it is so helpful for me to be reminded that the happiest person in the universe is God himself. There was no one happier than God. He is full of joy. God is full of life. And I, and I think about in the presence of God that he's happy in that moment. I think thirdly about his peace. As a high Enneagram nine, <laughs> I'm motivated, driven, and always longing to experience, see, and work towards peace. And so I remind myself in the moment, man, God, you are peaceful. Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. And all the stuff that I got to work through, the chaos of my day today has already been conquered by you. And so I can, as you said, take heart, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Fredo, I've overcome today. I'm a peaceful person. And then I move away from that and I think about how God is inviting me, ourselves, real with myself. I think about how God is inviting me to experience his agape love. That God has given all of himself to me to ensure that my life is in his hands. I think about God inviting me to experience his joy. He wants me to have the joy he has. He longs for me to taste and celebrate and smile with him, even through difficulty. And then I think about peace. I, I long for peace every day. I got to be ruled myself about that. But more so than that, so does God. And he's got a better plan for peace than I do. My plan for peace is to avoid every issue. <laughs> God's plan is to work through it. And so I hear God is saying, Alfredo, I'm inviting you in to work through it. You can have it. And then I, I, get, I think about others, real with others. I think about my wife, my family, my kids, that God's agape love would be over them, that God's joy would, would be in their work and in their random questions. <laughs> think about God's peace in their life. And then I think about other, I think about the generations around us. I think about God's love for the next generation. I think about God's love for the older generation, right? Now this is on the best of days. This isn't every day, but on the best of days. And I would imagine, man, what would happen to our church if every single one of us committed to allowing what we're learning to transform us into people of love as we took time to slow down and to meet God in these particular ways. 
the God of love, the God of joy, the God of peace for you so that you might become a person of agape love. Not, not filled with knowledge because some of you, man, some of you today, you have been in church for a long time. You know a lot of things, but I don't know if you know agape love yet. I don't know if you know it. Your social posts don't look like it. The way you treat people, the way you talk about the younger generation. I mean, some of you younger generation, I think about my own millennials, man. I'm concerned that many of us, we got a version of Jesus where he's like this beautiful, just handsome, relaxed, new age, like yoga teacher who drinks great coffee and he just wants your life to go well, but he doesn't care that you actually love him and obey him because that is the good life. Man, what would it look like for some of you today to acknowledge that all your learning has just led you further and further away from becoming a person of love and to turn back and to say, God, would you transform me now in this moment? Would what I know about you become my experience with you? Let's pray that together. Heavenly Father, as we think about the power of teaching and of learning, God, would you make us people of love today? Would you change us? God, for some of us, we have been on this pursuit of learning everything and missing Jesus. Would that stop today for some of us? And for those of us, God, who are caught up in just enjoying having so much at our fingertips, would you help us to see ways in which we can become people of agape love? Lead us to experience that from you, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen.